0: Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Wherever you may be, this is your host, Bruce Ash, along with Inside Track co-host Eb Wilkinson. And
1: ...and Bob Wells.
0: I'm broadcasting live from my hotel room at the Inball Hotel in Jerusalem, where the time is approximately ten oh five PM. I'm pleased to join you this evening for a very special Veterans Day weekend edition of Inside Track. And I'm happy that you uh, uh, Decided to join us for a few minutes uh, where I can briefly speak about my trip this week in Israel. Uh, This has been a very busy week. My small group of Jewish leaders from here in Tucson has spent both time in Israel and in the West Bank cities of Ramallah and Hebron, where I just returned from this afternoon. Insiders, you can hardly imagine the people we've met and the things we've seen this week. The millions of men, women, and children of the West Bank and Gaza are trapped by a political terror society where Everyone is subjected to fear and poverty. The Muslims received their, ter- their territories in 1947, just like the Israelis did. They started both at ground zero. In Israel, despite wars, endless strife in their neighborhood, the Jews and Arabs in Israel have, pro- have uh, uh, pros- prospered into a 21st century first world nation. Built uh, of a desire to succeed and to achieve peace. The West Bank and Gaza, despite tens of billions of dollars from Israel, from America, and our European partners, um, all of this money invested, and in that uh, area of the world is broke and broken. The rulers have reaped the riches, just like Yasser Arafat did. And the Muslims living there are broke and broken themselves. Today in Hebron, and earlier this week in Ramallah, it was clear that until these people are clear and free of their very powerful and dark malign leaders, There is no chance for peace until the Muslim leadership in Gaza and the West Bank decide that it's time to stop creating more martyrs and victims and begin creating success. Peace is possible, and yes, very much desired by their neighbors in Israel. But as long as there's darkness in Islam, it may never happen, and these millions continue to live in poverty as well as in a deathly environment where there is trash everywhere, destroyed properties, and no hope for the future. Just so that you know, as a Jew, I'm also able to fully appreciate the Israeli state is not perfect. There is much to be accomplished to build up the Jewish people and much to gain by granting greater equality with Israelis, Uh, with their neighbors uh, in the territories. To achieve peace, though, there needs to be two willing partners. That, unfortunately, does not exist today. While Israel is building a great high-tech country, building freeways, fast trains, light rail, and jobs, 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 Muslims uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza live under the control of despots who are more interested in their own fortune and the sacred fortune of their citizens. Hey friends, stay tuned for another great show with Beb, with Beb, with Eb, Bob, and Robin (laughs) talking about our veterans and and their great experiences serving our country. This portion of Inside Track is brought to you by the aforementioned Eb Wilkinson, from Ims Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you will never have to solely depend on Social Security. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you. Eb, as you know, is the real deal. He works for our family and he has achieved great success and results for us. When Eb makes a promise to advise a client, he does it. He means it and and believe me he always goes above and beyond the call of duty for his clients call eb monday and get him working for you and your family eb i'll be back with you again next saturday in person i we can't have an wait. action pack we have an action pass uh, a packed list of guests this month uh, later in the month including we hope Glenn Elmers and Don Critchlow to talk about their new books. Mr. Producer, let's go to our first break. Stay tuned when, when every returns after the break. I'll be heading off to bed in Israel, getting ready for an early morning visit to the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem and a 15-hour flight back to Tucson. I'm tired.
1: We miss you, Bruce.
0: To, you're listening to Inside Track. Ed will be right back after these messages. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus.
2: A lot of the the cities and counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap.
0: Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday.
2: Essential pest control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com.
3: Ask not. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your
4: country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. -Wilkinson I-M-U-S-Wilkinson.com 777-1911 777-1911 Welcome back to Inside Track, This portion of today's program brought to you by Eric Rudin and his professional team at Essential Pest. So now's the time to have your home or business protected from bugs and critters. I know I saw some termite tubes outside my house just the other day. And sadly, I also have pack rats. So call them now. Uh, They can help treat your yard. They can prevent those big leafy green weeds this winter. They can also get rid of the bugs, get rid of the pests. Call the Essential Pros at 886 three zero two nine so they can safely help you inside track is also brought to you by our friends jamie and gary kipper from tucson iron and metal surplus they've got some of the best surplus steel materials in stock right now to help you with your next project i know bruce has a whole bunch of rebar coming to him i have no idea why i was afraid to ask Call jamie and gary, uh, jamie and gary now and her steel pro craig beach at 209 1576. If you've got an upcoming project, go by their yard at 701 East 36th Street. Look at it for yourself. Uh, they're not a scary scrap yard like the big one across the street, and you're going to be amazed at what they've got that you'll never find at a big box store. These are two great locally owned family run businesses that you can depend on. Bruce and I do, and so should you. <coughs> As a country, We celebrate Veterans Day every November to honor those who've courageously served in our armed forces. We honor our combat veterans still living from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Grenada, Panama, Desert Storm, Operations Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, and Inherent Resolve. And today there's more than 19 million U.S. military veterans living here in the United States. Joining me here in the studio today is Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Robin Stoddard, retired, and Navy Captain Robert Wells. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us as we continue the celebration of Veterans Day.
3: Thank you, Ab. Great to be here.
4: Yeah. Robin Stoddard was a top fighter pilot in the Air Force. He had three combat tours in Iraq, two tours in Afghanistan. He was awarded the Bronze Star and an Air Medal in Afghanistan. In 1986, Robin started Wright Flight, a nonprofit corporation using aviation to motivate kids to do better in school. And Bob Wells is a retired Navy captain, former special advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. Bob's been a marketing management consultant and advisor on the U.S. defense and national security policy and international affairs for over 20 years. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. And Bob, I'm going to go right to you. What's the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day?
1: Thank you, Eb. Uh, veterans Day honors the <coughs> veterans, and uh, it was right after World War One, which uh, was 11-11, uh, originally entitled Armistice Day, which became Veterans Day uh, later on to celebrate people that had served the United States. Memorial Day is very hallowed. This was started after the Civil War. It was originally called the Decoration Day, and it honored the dead. Those that had fought and lost their lives on the field of battle. And it has extensive meaning with regard not only on land but also at sea. Many of the veterans that uh, served on submarines, especially during World War II, they're still out there on their final patrol. We memorialize their loss of life during World War II. So Memorial Day is for those that were lost at the time of their service in the field of battle. And Veterans Day honors the veterans that serve the United States so
4: Memorial Day that's when we all get the poppies
1: and Memorial Day the field the the Flanders fields uh, after after World War one 1918 uh, that's indeed correct in fact if you see that in May when uh, it's springtime it actually symbolizes you know those that lost their lives and the, the the poppy the Flanders field poppy is a is a great symbol
4: Robin, let's go to you. Um, tell us about your career.
1: Well, uh,
3: I was a fighter pilot for 30 years, flew A-7s, F-16s, A-10s, and Russian threat aircraft. Uh, I was honored to serve with some of the greatest fighter squadrons in the world. Uh, I was trained by a bunch of Vietnam vets, some of whom had over three, four, five hundred, six hundred 500, 600 combat missions flying uh, wow. in Laos and other places. And so I was honored to be taught by some of the best fighter pilots in the world, and and I try to teach other young fighter pilots. I'm still a contractor and teach young fighter pilots uh, some of the combat skills I learned and some of the lessons we've learned through the hard blood and pain of combat. Bob, what about yourself?
1: Well, I was a 30-year Navy uh, captain, retired in uh, 2007, but I had the privilege to command two ships of the line. Uh, The first ship I had was the USS Lewis B. Puller. That was back in the 90s, and then Right after 9 11, I assumed command of the Aegis cruiser USS Lake Champlain. So I had uh, approximately seven months during Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, right during the in- intensive time where we were actually looking at uh, finding Osama bin Laden up in the Tora Bora area of Afghanistan. And during that time on the water, uh, you could see how intense, how busy things are out there in the Persian Gulf, the North Arabian Sea region. You could also see the threat uh, after. Al-Qaeda after 9-11, where you didn't really trust anyone when you went ashore. You wanted to protect your ship, protect your crew. But my service uh, was extraordinary, and it lasted uh, at the end of the Vietnam era, through the Cold War area, and then the uh, two commands that I had with great crews. I brought my hats in today also to to symbolize the fact that I'm not speaking uh, just for myself, uh, who had the privilege of command, but also as a veteran, but I also... Oh, owe it to my crews. I had 406 personnel on Lake Champlain and 210 on Lewis B. Polar.
4: So on the Lake Champlain, what was your, ju- what was your main mission when you were out there?
1: Our main mission out there was uh, three. We had the anti-air warfare, uh, we had Red Crown, and we were uh, actually uh, commanding uh, the airspace for five carrier battle groups at that one particular time. We also had a sea control mission which was responsible for interdiction of illicit trafficking coming out of the Persian Gulf, and the final mission we had was the double SE or surface uh, subsurface mission, where we would identify everything out there in the Persian Gulf region, so that we would ensure safety of navigation, freedom of navigation, for all the shipping out there in the region. Okay,
4: um, if you are a vet and you are listening in, feel free to call in, tell your story seven nine zero two zero four zero. So I was in the Marine Corps. I was ROTC at Purdue University. Uh was commissioned in eighty one, went down to Pensacola for flight school where they said I was legally blind. I had twenty twenty five in my left eye. I went there from there to artillery school, (coughs) which was great, hence my bad ears. I went from there back to Aerial Observer School because at that point things were heating up. Uh They'd just blown up the barracks over in Beirut, mm-hmm. lost a couple of friends there, and uh, had a chance to go and uh, go to Anglico, Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. Had no idea what it was at the time, except uh, my guy said, yeah, you'll parachute behind lines with seven of your best friends, call in naval gunfire, and at the end of 30 days, if you're still alive, we'll pull you out. <laughs> I thought, hey, I'm single. <laughs> this is great. And... Um, I got to Aerial Observer School. It's a four-month school. It's, it's a lot of work. Uh, halfway through the school, we, uh, not we, but the U.S. invaded Grenada. That lasted about 104 hours. Uh, so didn't get a chance to do that. Uh, got stationed at VMO2 and um, never saw any combat. Because of me, the world was safe <laughs> the entire time I was in. <laughs> You know, and and then I got out, and, and that's that's one of my regrets, guys, is that I left without retiring. And the other regret that I have is I didn't go into the reserves, and I got to tell you, I miss that. I miss that camaraderie.
1: That's one of the things this past Veterans Day is. I really miss the camaraderie. I'm I'm fortunate enough to still have uh, six of my officers uh, on active duty uh, in command, uh, either ashore or afloat. Uh, one's an XO of a big deck, uh, the Tripoli, okay. uh, in San Diego. Uh, the other is the attaché, defense attaché in Japan. But I miss I miss their camaraderie uh, on Facebook and social media. You have a chance to continue to reach out through the years and reach out to the people that still remember you and still remember the actual time that we had uh, during our watch.
3: Yeah, same thing. The uh, camaraderie, you know, the flying jet fighters in combat is uh, right up there with pretty good excitement level but the camaraderie you had in the squadrons the squadron we can't call them bars anymore by the way there's no squadron bars there now heritage rooms just so you know okay
4: yeah so much for that yeah and another so, pc movement another over. pc
3: movement taking over but uh we have guys and uh it's almost like doing uh, 30 sit-ups because the, the jokes they tell each other about each other are so funny your your guts you know hurting and then uh, a couple jack and cokes to top it off so when did you uh get sworn in i was uh commissioned in 77 and i flew my last combat mission when i was 50 years old in 19 in 2005. tell me about your first combat mission well it was a southern watch mission uh outside of uh kuwait so we we're flying out of kuwait uh kuwait had been uh you know freed and the uh, first time i was there uh, it was interesting we go in into the c- cities and people were giving us thumbs ups all the time and and then a couple years later, that started to go away. You know, the, the local populace. And but it was amazing. We were flying Southern Watch. We we're trying to keep Saddam Hussein's forces from reinvigorating themselves into the Kuwait theater. So it was a fun mission, but uh, not as uh, not like some of the missions the guys had in like Vietnam and so forth. And your last mission? Last mission was supporting a convoy uh, in uh, Afghanistan. Convoy protection. So we would fly A tens. And we would protect the convoys as they're going from one village to another. One of my missions, I got to protect Karzai as he was flying, uh, as he was driving. Karzai? President Karzai when he was driving uh, from one part of uh, Kabul to another. And uh, it was really fun to kind of do an arena air race turns over the city of Kabul and uh, watching a couple uh, SUVs, you know, protect them while uh, we're flying low altitude over Kabul. Quite fun get shot at at your last mission uh i probably been shot at but uh, never enough close enough to for me to worry about it the flying the a10 you're flying the most protected airplane in the world and it's most heavily armored in terms of protecting the pilot multiple flight controls it's the best combat platform i think america's ever made uh and so we were shot at but uh i'm not sure not not a single a10 was ever hit or damaged to an extent in Afghanistan and even in Southern and Northern watch in 30 years of combat since 2000, uh, 20 years, we've never lost a single A-10. It's amazing. But
4: they've been shot up at some point.
3: They've had a couple that got shot up. And, uh, one guy we talked about in some of our classroom academics in uh, Gulf War one, he had over 300 holes in the airplane and brought it back and landed and they patched him up with some speed tape and, uh, yep. sent him out again, you know, yep.
1: Bob. My first time was about five years before Robin uh, was out there for Desert Storm and his particular Southern Watch missions. And this was a very important period of time in the Cold War. And you're looking at the client relationship of Saddam Hussein with the Soviet Union. You also had the first few years, and this is the mid-80s here, 85, 86, 87, first few years of the Iranian Revolution. So Ayatollah Khomeini was still there. But the United States, uh, President Reagan made the decision to basically escort the Kuwaiti tankers out to basically maintain uh, free flow of uh, energy, oil, to Europe and the United States from the Gulf. Our mission at that particular time, as Saddam Hussein is flying his F-1 aircraft and bombing Karg Island with the Iranians, where the Iranians were coming out and shining their light into our bridge to make sure they don't hit an American as they're shooting tankers, the tanker war. We're right in the middle of that. So we're on these uh, destroyers at this particular time. And uh, we were in a combat operations environment with the uh, F-1 aircraft as well as from the sea. A few years later, they actually had Operation Praying Mantis against the Iranians and uh, shot up the uh, oil platforms. But we were escorting those tankers. That's the first, first uh, real-world operation in terms of sea control, freedom of passage uh, through the Persian Gulf out the Strait of Hormuz to the Arabian Sea. And it was... It was pretty intense uh, throughout that entire deployment.
4: So that was your first time.
1: That's my first time. Yes.
4: So now you were captain of the Polar at that point?
1: No, I wasn't. This was before. I was a I was a department <laughs> head, but I was the uh, tactical action officer okay. and the operations officer for the ship. In fact, my captain was uh, General or Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Stra- Staff. So he was Iron Mike. Yep. And I was uh, Lieutenant Bob at that particular time.
4: So the very first time the captain called you up and said lieutenant bob here's your mission and now you know it's a real world mission yes you know everything up till then was training yes what was your thought at that point besides what the
1: well it it, a little bit of that as well but i think you're trained before you actually leave our, our home port at this particular time on this ship which was uss goldsboro It's a guided missile destroyer brand new Uh, air combat system armor we're looking forward to actually using it Uh, we had really good track quality for the air combat mission but my thought was uh, we're trained we can do it and to communicate to the troops making sure that uh, my division uh, my department knew what we were going to get into and I was also senior watch officer so I was responsible for the training operations training of the officers the deck making sure that combat information center we had the CIC. Uh, We had the gl- uh, the gunnery liaison officer, the glows. Yep. That would work with the angle it goes. So we had that responsibility. So once he told us that, uh, we had practice. We had op tasks. Uh, this was actually after the newly formed U.S. Central Command after Goldwater-Nichols in 1986. So I'm dating myself, but that's okay.
4: So you don't necessarily just hop on a ship, drive no. it out there, and say, "Hey, let's see what we can do." There's uh, there is a tremendous amount of training. That goes in prior to you leaving port for a real world mission.
1: Quite right. It's ninety ten, ninety percent preparation, ten percent execution. In fact, you spend more time in home port uh, in operations areas uh, at sea preparing for your operational deployment because you can't just fly a ship from Hawaii or the west coast of the Persian Gulf. It's thirty thousand nautical miles round trip, so fifteen thousand miles uh, one way. So, its seamanship its navigation its crew training uh... all the coordination itself every individual on board uh, the ship is critically important to that mission
4: so how long would it take that ship to go the fifteen thousand nautical
1: miles about thirty days About thirty days and we'd always have a a, a crew rest we'd have great liberty in uh... in places uh, at that time the philippines was still uh... active so there may be some veterans in the audience are of the Philippines, the importance of the Philippines uh, in uh, Subic Bay. Also, we stop in Singapore, and we'd also stop, uh, if we're doing diploma- diplomatic relations at that time, we'd stop in India, or we'd stop in Thailand on the way to the Persian Gulf. Okay.
4: Mr. Producer, we're coming up uh, on our time for a break, so why don't we take that break now? When we return, we're going to continue to talk about the military, Veterans Day, and the greatest country in the world.
0: I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists. Interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon tucson iron and steel retail 701 east 36th street call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com and when you do call mention this ad and receive an additional 10 percent discount on their already great
2: prices essential pest control leaves bugs belly up with science You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com.
4: I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com. 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. Before we get back to our discussion, now is a perfect time to call Corazon Cabinets to get a jump on your next home improvement project. Thanksgiving's just a couple of weeks away. Christmas is right around the corner. And of course, that good old dreaded New Year with all your resolutions. Uh, Listen, no supply chain problems are uh, going on right now at Corazon. Cabinets are uh, stacked to the rafters. Uh, Joy and Ollie have their 6,000 square foot warehouse ready for you to come take a look at. Call Monday, speak with them and their design professionals at Corazon, 488-2266. I've used them. I can't say anything bad about them at all. It's nothing but positive. Bruce has used them. He's ecstatic as well. So once again, Corazon, 488-2266. Robin, we had to go to a
3: break before we got to you. Talked about your first deployment. Uh, my first deployment to Afghanistan 2002, so right after we started to push the Taliban uh, out of the entire country, uh, I was on the ground with uh, Ranger Special Forces uh, Army. I was the Air Force Liaison Officer with the Army, and we went out and investigated an incident uh, through some small Afghan villages uh, via Kandahar, Taran Kaut, De Rawood, and we had to look at uh, whether or not a C-130 gunship had inadvertently st- struck some civilians. and. I was able to find exonerating evidence for the air crew because of my knowledge of Russian weapons and tactics and actually debriefed Karzai in the presidential palace. Uh, the point was, though, what I saw was there was no women in all these villages over, say, 11 years old. They'd be playing in the streets uh, with their you know, brothers and sisters at uh, 10 or 11, but after 11, all the women were just totally covered up. And, really? In a sense, no freedom. And then once we got in there, women of Afghanistan started to have some freedom and they had they could go to school you know and so learn to read they could learn to read they uh, they had the they could marry whoever they wanted or didn't want to marry they weren't into put into forced marriages you know and so now the Taliban have taken over again we have 20 million women because of our uh, policy we were part of enduring freedom well enduring should last more than 20 years We stayed in Korea for 70 years, Germany for 70 years. We could have stayed there. And with our air power, we were able to wipe out the Taliban every time they popped up their heads like whack-a-mole. And those villages were free. Now those villages in Kabul, all of Afghanistan, is oppressed by the Taliban. And it's a shame. And I shout out to all the Afghan vets because every Afghan vet I've talked to, we were winning the war. We had saved Afghanistan. We had allowed the liberation of women to seek jobs and education. And that's going to be you know, taken away in tremendous fashion. Okay, what what do you discredit that to? Well, I think uh, the last two administrations, you don't, to me, you should not make uh, peace pacts with people you can't trust. And what I learned by working side by side with, I had an escort of uh, Afghani nationals. They were the Northern Alliance types. My escort was protecting me from the Taliban and they were great fighters, great individuals. But what I saw is, uh, the Taliban, when they try to uh, have meetings, they consider us dogs. We're not, we're subhuman to them. So if you lie to a dog, it's not lying. So when we go for a peace pact with them, they say, yeah, we'll, we'll abide by this, we'll abide by that. I can't believe that our State Department people thought that that would hold true. You know, the Northern Alliance, it didn't hold true for them. And, and it's, you know, you have people in Afghanistan that would like to seek freedom and a more moderate form of Islam But uh, working with the Taliban, you're working with people that literally think we're dogs and we're not worth, you know, they can't understand how, why we don't have, we have so much power, but we don't use it correctly.
1: One of the important points uh, to make also with regard to enduring freedom and that that ethic there is that the veterans that served in Afghanistan, it's been underscored this particular Veterans Day by the leadership of the U.S. military, as well as those like General Petraeus with regard to the honorable service that they rendered, and also the honorable uh, fact that they uh, did make a difference in Afghanistan, as, yeah. as you just testified to. I also think uh, it's important to note, even though the policy did change with this administration and, and that those particular points you brought up with regard to uh, you know what happened in Afghanistan with this new administration, the fundamental fact is veterans are really leading the way in supporting those that we left behind in Afghanistan. They've got the smaller groups that are working to get those particular uh, supporters uh, of Afghanistan that supported us uh, with their uh, special mission there. They're working to get them out. And final point is that-
4: Let's uh, talk about that later on. Sure. No, I mean, no, let's talk about that. Okay. Tell me about that.
1: Well, they had uh, multiple organizations, uh, veterans organizations worked with uh, General Milley As the chairman and they came up with a defense policy of allowing veterans groups to work with the state department in order to manage the withdrawal and getting uh people that supported us during our during freedom service there out of afghanistan so they didn't have to uh, live under taliban rule uh that is working it's uh baby steps uh sometimes a little bit more of a crawl but we are getting people out through tajikistan we are getting people out and women out uh, of key places inside Afghanistan. Now, the Taliban has control of the entire country now, but I think that's a very important mission that these veterans have continued to support. So, And
4: they're no longer active. They are veterans. They're no longer
1: they're active. They're working through their veterans' organizations. They remembered their service. They remembered also that what they did on and achieved on their watch to basically give these people in Afghanistan, the women of Afghanistan, a chance.
4: So, now, some of them are operating here in the U.S. That's right. And some are operating on the ground in Afghanistan.
1: They're on the ground in Afghanistan. They're also in the, uh, the uh, adjoining countries there. They're in uh, Tajikistan, Tajikistan. Yeah. Okay. and also in Qatar, uh, working with the uh, diplomatic community there because the United States' representation after we left Kabul is in Doha, Gutter. So that's that's our hub for diplomatic uh, relationships and working on all the air transport uh from afghanistan uh, to gutter
4: so when these veterans what is it, operation pineapple i think uh, when these veterans go into afghanistan how are they getting in
1: i i really and, don't know the details okay, of that but they're getting in. but uh, they're getting in because of relationships and they're looking at uh I they're
4: think, basically not getting their passport stamped
1: well i i also think though if they have these uh working groups which they do with the u.s state department uh both in washington in terms of influence and also points of contact in gutter. They are working with the Taliban. Uh, You can't trust them in order to actually get them into support getting the people we left behind out.
4: Okay. And you're going to talk about an article that you read.
1: Well, I just think that uh, a lot of the uh, observations this past week uh, with Veterans Day and honoring service uh, is critically important, but looking in the future... Uh, The former National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, uh, penned an article which is worth reading in the Wall Street Journal this week. And basically the headline was, Honor Veterans by Having the Will to Win a War. Meaning don't commit our country if you don't have the will to stay the course until its final goal, either it's victory or stabilization or trying to help out another nation state in order to stabilize, because stability is the fundamental with regard to to freedom. But that's a fundamental point that he's making now, that the military veterans have a duty to speak up with regard to our ethic and our (laughs) our communication to our policymakers. So we don't have people that come into power in the future that make these decisions that don't take into consideration the service rendered by veterans, but also the ones that will have... You know, we can't... We're not going to have this same force five years from now. There's going to be new recruits. Uh, parents have their sons and daughters that are that'll be going into an all volunteer force. Uh, you don't want to do it for a job. You're doing it for service, and right. you're really doing it to basically commit to those ideals and to actually make sure that when they commit the United States to whatever mission, that you have the will to win, and no matter what it is, it is a war, non combatant evacuation operation. Stability operation, sea control, freedom of the seas, no matter what, you are committing the sons and daughters in this all-volunteer force to win. So that, that's the message from H.R. McMaster this week. I thought it was very well written. We owe that to the country, uh, veterans. We stood the watch. Now we have the back of those on active duty who are on the watch.
4: Yeah, and so I think all three of us uh, – when involuntarily we weren't drafted it was a choice that we made freely and openly Mm -hmm. and so when you went in how did you tell your family and friends
1: I was was pretty proud Uh, or was
4: that a foregone conclusion
1: wasn't a foregone conclusion because uh, like yourself at Purdue I was at UCLA and uh, I was in ROTC and uh, my grandfather we're from a Navy family my grandfather was enlisted man Uh, battleship sailor was at Pearl Harbor my father was an enlisted man was on the Kearsarge during the Korean War so I've always been around the Navy and uh, I made the decision at UCLA probably my last year that I wanted to serve I wanted to be uh, a navigator I wanted to navigate the ship across the Pacific Ocean I did that but then working with the crew I was in the engineering spaces I was a snipe Yep, I love the I love the boiler technicians and the machinist mates and the auxiliary men, and I, their skill sets are, are so important and they really know what they're doing. So I said I'd like to serve and I continued on serving and ten years went by, then twenty, and then eventually thirty.
4: How did you tell your family and friends?
1: Well, or uh, was
4: that a foregone conclusion?
1: No, it was not. I was uh,
3: kind of a long-haired hippie first couple of years of college, and then they said, "There's a." Uh, I still so
4: want those photos. Yeah, yeah. I know. I,
3: I should get some. Uh, but uh, then uh, they said you could do a two year ROTC program. So I, I signed up for that. Uh, my father was an F-86 pilot in the Korean War. I was born on an F-86 base in Japan. And uh, my father's uncle was a World War I fighter pilot. And now my son's a fighter pilot. and My other son's a space guardian. So uh, the military traditions of our family, but we have four generations of fighter pilots was pretty rare since we've only had fighter aircrafts for about a hundred years. So, um, but once you get flying in your blood, it's not fair. I, I had to serve a quote five years after I got my commission, and again at five turned into ten, to twenty, to thirty, and kept flying different jets. Uh, and the camaraderie we've already mentioned, the uh, the joy you have working with a great crew, uh, to be able to serve your country, and then to see the results of the proper application of force where freedom. I I had w- Afghan women come up to me in tears thanking me stroking my hand as if it was some sort type of savior and when you have that happen to you that you have a sense of what all the military has done for so many people starting in germany and, and 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 you know living in south korea versus north korea who wants you know we have sacrificed so much and the veterans that have gone to these places they are so beloved uh my first assignment was in england and there's people that love the American Air Force more than the Americans, and that's the English. Where were you at? Mildenhall, Lake and Heath? I was in, uh, it was at Bentwaters. Okay. Six six squadrons, uh, largest fighter wing in the world. And I had English people come up to me saying, I was a lad when I was seven. I saw the B-17s take off and, you know, 14 leave and... Three come back. And three come back. And they knew that on each crew, they uh, were 10 guys that they'd never see again. And this, uh, this one English gentleman said... You know, you Americans, you always had t- same two questions. I go, what's that? Well, first off, you'd ask me, do you want some gum, chum? Meaning, hey, do you want some... Because they didn't have candy. Right. So the Americans always had Hershey bars and candy. So every English schoolboy knew he could ask... You know, the Americans would ask him, do you want some gum, chum? And he said, you Yanks, your second question was always the same. I go, what was that? Do you have an older sister? <laughs> so uh, the American... Uh, you know. and, and
4: there were a lot of war brides that <laughs> came right. back. That's right.
3: So it was to meet the English uh, and their love of aviation and to carry it on for 30 years, uh, I was very fortunate. So you remember your first flight where
4: it was your first solo flight
3: in yeah, the Air Force? That was in, our, well, ROTC, uh, solo in downtown Fort Collins, again, uh, Colorado State University.
4: No, you're, you're for, I'll, your first oh, solo. solo,
3: now you're a lieutenant flight. Oh yeah, I was uh, in, at Texas uh, Reese Air Force Base, now closed. Uh, and you go, yeah, you've been gone through all this training, and uh, you try not to have a squeaky voice when you call the tower. Yeah, I'd like to take off now, you know. <laughs> I'd like to take off. Well, you know. Yeah. And so, and then you just try to rely on your training, and if you can, uh, you know, and 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 then to go from there at Reese Air Force Base to being trained by the some of the best combat veterans from Vietnam was a true treasure to me uh, uh one guy in particular growth wilson over 600 combat missions wow and he had over uh, 50 missions in gulf war one and the, and the whole and the whole war only lasted 44 days so in gulf war one he and his uh, a-10s they stopped the scuds from firing firing on israel and so to to be part of people like that is just incredible yeah
4: and then so you remember your first landing it's like Gee, don't let me <laughs> f yeah, this up.
3: Yeah, it's the old uh, yeah, it's the uh, the fighter pilot or the astronauts uh, prayer. Yeah, please, Jesus, don't let me uh, screw this up. Screw this up. Yeah, and and so far the good Lord's been good to me and 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 most of my friends, but we've all lost friends in combat and uh, and peacetime and peacetime. I we I've, we lost.
4: I lost more friends in peacetime. Right. Absolutely. Then. We ever lost in combat with VMO two? That's right. I, the, the only two people, and we didn't lose them. They were on temporary loan uh, to the uh, Iraqis, uh, and uh, that was uh, Guy Hunter. He was a chief warrant officer, and uh, Jim Acree, no Cliff Acree, who was the CEO of VMO two. They got shot down and captured. Yeah, but yeah. you know nobody died there. But we, I probably lost six or seven guys? Oh, I, I've had lunch. In with, in peacetime? Yeah. On I, the VMO2? OV
3: I've, uh, I've, t- three times I've had, I've seen a buddy at lunch and they're dead by half hour. Something went wrong with the plane or they made a mistake. So it's a tough business and that's why the camaraderie is so strong. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, we're, you know, the Air Force, uh, we like to, we like our Navy fighter pilot friends, you know, we refer to them of course as a junior varsity, and they willingly accept that. Well, maybe not so well, much. you know, yeah, in, yeah.
4: in yeah. the Marine Corps, you know, Department of the Navy, oh, yeah. the men's department.
3: That's right. Okay. That's right. That's right. The Marines are the top notch. And they're, they've been around longer than uh, our 4th of July. Yeah, right? we were starting 1975.
4: to 1975.
3: Yeah. Ton Tavern. Yeah, that's great. So,
4: Bob, your first command, so you're now on the puller, okay, chesty puller, great guy. The first time you walk aboard ship, you salute the ensign, you salute the officer of the deck, or does he salute you?
1: No, you request permission to come aboard. Wow. It was after my change of command; I was a new commanding officer, so I had, uh, you know, the four bells struck to bring me aboard, and to pick up. Well, and did
4: they pipe you aboard as well?
1: Didn't pipe me. They just okay. they just bong you aboard. Okay, uh, they they pipe you when you leave, but uh, pick up on Robin's point though about. Flying, you know, on the sea, you are flying, so to speak. It's all about seamanship, right? And you want to make sure that you're
4: just flying. Hopefully, in a two-dimensional plane,
1: you're making sure that you keep her in deep water, and also don't hit anything. And you have, you know, fifteen thousand miles to go, and it really is about your seamanship. It's about your professionalism, making sure that you stand a good watch, your voyage plan, you navigate out, because you got to you got to go through all kinds of weather to, uh, to get to. Their particular uh, destination there so it's a crew effort it's also 24 7 so it's not just particular one combat mission it's 24 7 so you got watches that are standing out there it's dark at night you know during my time there was no internet to be sure so you really were responsible for the entire crew and telling them what's going on so uh, great great just great times great memories at sea and we on that particular mission that, that there's a variety of missions it's all isn't war but right. our, our particular mission was a counter drug mission which was the war on drugs back in the uh, 1990s yes uh, and it's still there but it's off of Colombia it's off of Ecuador it's all, through the Panama Canal off of uh, Guajira Peninsula off of the Mosquito Coast in Nicaragua still remember it just like it was yesterday we had 24 interdictions. Uh, you know, two two really good uh, drug busts down there. We had a helicopter up uh, to do double a surface subsurface uh, mission to locate the Go Fast. We work with the Coast Guard because the Navy can't basically it needs to have a Coast Guard presence to do international law enforcement on the high seas. But th- those are great missions as well. And there's lots of other sea stories to tell, which is always important when you come from the sea. So we can communicate with our yeah, Our Air Force, uh, you know, partners here as well as uh, the uh, U.S. Marine Corps. Yeah,
3: know. I only know left and right, not port and starboard. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. They
1: that. call it naval
3: operations. Exactly. <laughs> but, so when you say surface, subsurface,
1: yes.
4: Did you interdict submarines that
1: were coming in? Uh, we have on other missions, uh, not so much on the polar. Uh, <laughs> there were submarines that were carrying the cocaine coming out of Ecuador and the mangroves of uh, <laughs> of Colombia. But in Cold War operations, we did. We interdicted uh, Soviet submarines in uh, certain key areas in the Northern Pacific. We also uh, had exercises where we were uh, encountering U.S. submarines. Uh, we called it Hollywood Ops. So you'd have yep. three or four of the uh, fast attack submarines, and uh, the surface uh, commanders would be the target. So you would practice your tactics. But uh, that was all part of the actual uh, operations at sea but the double sc mission uh what we can do still with just two ships and up airborne aircraft back then it was a p3 now it's a p8 you can really do quite a bit of sea control now they have the new uh mq9 broad area maritime surveillance triton uh which i won't go into all the details but uh i think the people listening should realize that we have uh, we have quite a bit of capability that is already now in our our uh our quiver, our our toolkit, so that we can use that to maintain stability, sea control, and to respond, which is the most important thing.
4: Let's go back to sea stories, because you're correct. Sea stories are an important lifeblood of all of us. Let's start with uh, Robin (laughs) first. The funniest (laughs) thing that happened on one of your deployments.
3: Oh boy. (laughs) Well, I I can't tell you the top ten funny things, because it's a PG-rated show, is that correct?
4: Uh, Tom is your finger anywhere near the dump button?
3: <laughs> All okay, right.
4: PG rated show, but Tom will dump you if you.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, we, um, there's just so many funny stories because when you're done flying, you know it's you know how do you get to the chow hall together? Um, <clears throat> allegedly, when we were flying in Southern Watch, uh, we were not allowed, according to General Order Number One, not have any gambling or alcohol. So fortunately, the people from the states sent us bottles of twelve-year-old uh, Listerine. Yeah, in Listerine bottles, single malt Listerine, and we had uh, other types of Listerine. So allegedly, we sometimes could have a drink in a combat zone. Would, would your senior
4: officers, commanders, COs ever say, "Robin, I need to gargle"?
3: <laughs> well, we had uh, we had uh, usually we put the the lowest-ranking lieutenant in charge of the the scope and Listerine. Sure. And uh, so we always had an out. Uh, and uh, that was probably that. And then we had our own version of an officer's club made out of uh, about 10 sheets of plywood, you know. Uh, and so it was just the camaraderie after mission sitting there and smoking cigars. And we converted our ammo cans into uh, humidors. So we had uh, ammo cans we were carrying around, looking like we're on official business to do something. And they were actually cigars in a humidor. Yeah.
1: Bob, well, oh, mine involve family humor, and I've got quite a few stories. On and the sh-
4: by the way, we only have four minutes left. Okay,
1: <laughs> on the ship, uh, you know, certain you know, fishing stories and and also liberty stories uh, with the crew. But my, mine, I think, to let everyone know uh, here on the radio today was after we left uh, San Diego, and something always happens when you're uh, when you leave, and your in your family, your wife uh, has to deal with things that are unforeseen. Well, right. What happened was the uh the lawnmower crapped out and uh she was interviewed on the pier by the navy times about uh saying farewell to the ship and her husband and the crew for operation enduring freedom and what was on her mind was how to get the damn lawnmower, lawnmower fixed <laughs> yeah,
0: <that's great.
1: laughs> well what happened was the reporter picked the story up and they ran it on the front page of the navy times so the next thing i knew about it uh had no idea what happened But well, it was 30 days later as we're getting into Singapore we're getting the mail load and uh, it the first Navy Times went to the chiefs mess and the chiefs read that and uh, my master chief came up to the bridge and say captain your wife dimed you out so, <laughs> <laughs> so that got onto the whole the whole crew there so uh, they were very supportive uh, great uh, you know great L- LKC families yep. there and that was our mission but uh, the home front and uh, realizing the independence the importance of the home front the families that uh, they take it they were there too their were were
4: services different. as hard they as were, ours
1: absolutely right and uh, that was a little bit of humor that came at the right time as we're all focused into going out supporting uh, Robin's, uh missions out there uh, over in the airspace uh, at that particular yeah. time above Afghanistan yeah
3: we flew over Persian Gulf and then yep. all the way to Afghanistan from Qatar yeah,
1: yeah. so so the last
4: two minutes that we have of the show, um, when you got out, do you remember the first time you thought, oh, crap, I don't have this to do anymore?
3: Well, uh, yes, and it's the lack of, or the, the loss of the camaraderie. So I did go on to become a contractor, and now I'm still involved at the fighter squadrons and teaching, uh, I call them young puppies, young puppy lieutenants. Uh, everything from how to taxi to how to employ the Gawait gun. and uh, so I'm fortunate I get to still do that. Um, uh, there's that what Marine fighter pilot quote about at least he doesn't have to do something about the uh, stuff out of Hong Kong. Yeah, you know? so um, rubber, yeah, yeah, so uh, it's, uh, it's it's one day we all hang up our spurs, but we also still serve and as veterans we all continue to serve and and now some many veterans are running for Congress and uh, we're going to be able to change perhaps some of the 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 problems with our political landscape right now because people that have served in combat they don't back down yeah
2: Bob
1: I think mine was uh, as I was being piped over the side uh, after I uh, changed command on the Lake Champlain uh, last time in uniform I was heading back to Washington, D.C. to serve in a policy position, but I, I really did feel it. I looked at the crew, I saw the sailors, I love the sailors uniform, and yeah. uh, I really I really miss that, and, and Hayes Gray, and my home port of San Diego, which was my first home port, so... 32nd really, Street. I still, yeah, I still feel it. I still feel the... Uh, every time I go back to San Diego, I, I seek out uh, my ship if she's in port, and uh, just reminisce just a little bit, but it's it certainly uh, with the sailors themselves. They're still there. You still see them. Yeah. You see them on the waterfront. You realize what they need to do. Uh, but that's my that was my thought as well, I gentlemen. We're running out of
4: time. Out of time. Uh, thank you for joining us. This has been great. Uh, from one Marine to the Navy and the Air Force. Semper Fi. God bless. Semper Fi. Until next Saturday. This is Ed Wilkinson
3: and Bob Wells. Robin Stoddard.
4: Thanking you for joining us. Wishing you all a very pleasant afternoon.
0: Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What are the kind of customers do you have So our
2: biggest customers are actually like ranchers and people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing.
3: They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences.
2: We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So... Uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material what they're making bringing it back and so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them so i think that's really our niche market we'll sell whatever you need
0: tucson iron and metal surplus call 209-1579 stop by the yard 701 east 36th street open monday through saturday
3: What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your
4: country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. I am uswilkinson.com. 777-1911. 777-1911.